0: All right. Good morning. You'll see, I, I, I haven't done something like this in like 30 years, which will be apparent to you shortly. I'm really glad to be here though. Um, it's my first chance to really address you guys since I was installed back in April, I believe it was. Um, just a couple of things before we start. I want to mention that um, ask actually for your patience with me. I'm, I'm, I'm still putting faces and names. And so just today I met two or three people that I hadn't, they've been here before. So, so if I ask you your name, and I did it three weeks ago, please, I'll get, I'll get there, but uh, be patient with me. Second thing I wanted to mention is that you've probably noticed that my demographic is not, it's not that well represented here. And um, and so we're sensitive to that. I am, um, you know, we're, we're here for your comfort and your joy. Uh, but honestly, I have no idea how that's going to work out right now. Um, I I've met with guys. Um, I've done it for a while. I love doing it. And so if you're if you're a guy that that is interested in something like that, then talk to me. We'll see if maybe we can work something like that out. Otherwise, you know. If you've got some ideas or suggestions, let us know. We'd love to, uh, we'd love to entertain that. Um, finally, um, Laura, you want to come up? On the odd chance that you don't know my wife, this is Laura. I want you to visually connect. We're a team. She completes me in a lot of ways. And one way is that she's a better reader than I am. So I'm gonna let her read the passage today. Ephesians 3, verses one to 13. Hear the word of God.
1: For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to us, was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed now in his holy name, um, his holy apostles, it's a better reader, and uh, prophets by the spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel,
0: I was was reading this morning in my devotional, Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And that one sentence, uh, you combine beauty and power. And uh, we've we've seen in Ephesians already, uh, you've you've made known your power. Um, Make it known now. I pray that you'd overrule um, my weaknesses, because there's plenty of them. Yeah, so that my brothers and sisters here um, might increase even a little bit in the uh, admiration and affection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you do that today? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Richard Warmbrand was a Romanian priest who in 1948 publicly proclaimed that Christianity and communism were incompatible. As you might guess, the Soviet regime didn't think too highly of that, and uh, he spent the next eight years in prison. His family, his congregation, had no idea where he was or anything. The only news they got was an occasional visit from a secret police officer posing as a former prisoner um, who uh, came to report that they'd attended his, his funeral, which of course was not true. But do you imagine what the congregation felt like? Imagine his family, you know, you know what's going on? What, you know, confused, um, discouraged, you know, you know, now what? And, uh, way less dramatic, but more day-to-day reality for me. I've picked up uh, Operation World this year. It's an encyclopedia of prayer about that thick, um, praying through all the countries of the world, it was last updated in 2010. Um, it's been interesting to bump into countries uh, to pray and, and seeing that things are actually worse now than they were in 2010. You increase, con- increase persecution, chaos and evil, um, indifference, malaise. And so, and, and it's like I you know, you have this little voice in the back of my head saying, you know, why, why bother? I mean, what good is it? And then, of course, we've got all kinds of circumstances here. Loved ones with physical ailments ailments that linger, seem like they never get better. Uh, Relationships with family or friends that are strained and have been. um, We're discouraged, fearful, guilty, perhaps. Monthly financial struggles we can't seem to ever get on top of. It's like, gosh, is this ever going to end? Parents of young kids where the demands never cease. I mean, they never cease. Um, see, there's a defeated weariness. Um, Our job is wearing us out. And we're un- unappreciated at the office. And, and we're frustrated. Uh, feels hopeless. Um, giving up, even. Uh, according to theologian Frank Thielman, life in a large Roman city like Ephesus was hard, marked by competition for survival between individuals and the various groups to which they belonged. Following Jesus added a layer of complexity and difficulty to an already difficult life because Christians stood apart from the culture, and they were often marginalized by it. In our passage today, Paul seeks to encourage his hearers, including us, to not give up on their trust in God amidst hardship and suffering. So let's look at the text. We'll we'll, um, kind of roll through. Um, As we begin, remember, in chapter 1, first half was doctrine, and then the second half was prayer, introduced by, for this reason. Rolled into chapter two, it's more doctrine, and now we come at the, at the beginning of, of chapter three, for this reason. So, Paul begins to pray again, but his train of thought is interrupted, and instead of launching into prayer, he goes off on a tangent, parenthesis for 12 verses. So, you know, what's going on? Why? He mentions that he's a prisoner for Christ Jesus on their behalf. So some would have known uh, of his situation uh, in house arrest in Rome, but some wouldn't. So it's the first time he mentioned it. Um, what was the Ephesian reaction to this? Were were, were they discouraged, surprised? Uh, what's what's going to happen to this guy? Um, guilt. I mean, it's on their behalf. Do we do something? We get a clue what's going on in Paul's mind if you roll all the way to verse 13. So that I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So he encourages the the Ephesians not to lose heart because of his circumstances. So let's look at some of the things that he he mentions. Rolling through, starting in verse 2. You know, God has a plan for Paul, and it's glorious he says uh, that he has a stewardship. So, Paul has a responsibility. It's a calling. It's not just a task or a job. It's what he's supposed to do with his life, and he knows that. Stewardship of God's grace grace is unmerited favor. It's a gift from God. It's, it's not a begrudging attitude of duty. It's, uh, you know, he just didn't have to get through it. It's a privilege. You get that in the tone. And it's for you. Again, he's, he's focused on his people. He talks about a mystery. Um, a mystery that uh, we'll look at in just a moment, but it's identified for us in verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So that's a recap from chapter 2. Um, it's made known by Revelation which is a clear, unmistakable call from God. Uh, No doubt about it. Written briefly. So we saw that in the first two chapters, especially the second half of chapter two. And he talks about a mystery that's not been made known previously, but now revealed. So we think of mystery, we think of something obscure, unknown. Um, But here in the scriptures, it, it has a different connotation. The mystery is not something unknown, obscure, and concealed, but rather, something formerly unknown, but now revealed. So now this mystery is revealed. It's no longer a mystery. If you remember, there are lots of Old Testament hints of God's plan to include the Gentiles into his fold. Um, The ones that came to my mind uh, in Genesis 12, three, when, uh, when God speaks to Abraham, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Um, in Isaiah, there's a number of them in 49:6 the, in, in the Servant Song. God tells His servant, "It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation shall reach to the end of the earth." So now, this plan that had been hinted at all through the Old Testament, uh, God has revealed more clearly. More fully, with more precision, to Paul and the other apostles. Um, so it's known now. It's it's you know, I remind myself that these Old Testament hints were were way before Paul. Right? Uh, Abraham was thousands of years before Paul, and uh, and Isaiah was nearly a thousand. And so, you know, when it's, it's, I can't remember three days ago, it's, it's not hard to imagine that people would have forgotten or given up hope. But now Paul comes and says, this mystery is now revealed. It's not, a mis- it's, it's, it's not unknown any longer. So moving on, Paul is a gospel minister of by gift of God's grace by power, though I am least of all the saints. So let's briefly look at Paul's view of, uh, of, um, of his calling. Recall what God told Ananias at Paul's conversion, which Paul undoubtedly knew too in Acts 9. For he is a chosen instrument of mine, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Paul's fuller description of his calling in 1 Timothy uh, 1, 12 to 16. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I have received mercy that in me the foremost of sinners, Jesus, Jesus, might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. And this grace is not just to start, but to continue the work. In 1 Corinthians 15, 10, his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God within me. So Paul was not surprised by his situation as a prisoner he understood God's glorious grace, and his privilege, and his calling, and he was faithfully fulfilling his stewardship. He knew difficulties and trials were around every corner. Sometimes he prayed for relief, and the answer was no. Then he pressed on with confidence in God. And look at the fruits of the Ephesians. I mean, he says, look, amazing truths described in chapter one, and now the revelation that the Ephesians are included fully. Hence, he can urge his readers not to be disheartened by his situation. God's plans are being carried out completely with present and future benefits for the Ephesians. So how, how might this apply to us? You, you might say, fine, Ed, I hear you, but, but Paul had a revelation from God himself, for Pete's sake. You'd say, yep, that's true. You know, Paul had a macro view of things and a micro view of things, that very few of us will have. What's also true, I think, I don't know all of you that well, but that uh, I don't suspect that that many of you have coordinated and executed the persecution and death of Christians in our spheres and beyond, maybe not. Um, The graces extended to Paul and to the Ephesians are likewise extended to us. We've already considered unsearchable riches in chapter 1, And we'll look at these again in a moment, but I I wanted to stop and just kind of take a minute to remind us some of the macro truths about our lives and circumstances And God intends for our encouragement. So what about Psalm 139, 16? In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. About Romans eight, there's tons of stuff there. Just some excerpts. The sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And what then shall we say to these things? God's work for us. If God is for us, who can be against? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not not also graciously give us all things? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Philippians 1, 6, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And then the words of Jesus himself recorded in Matthew 6 and 10. Remember the parables of feeding the birds and clothing the lilies. Um, I found a brief summary of of God's providence in a um, in an excerpt from John Piper's book on Providence. God does not just feed the birds and clothe the lilies. He decides when every bird, countless millions every year, dies and falls to the ground. His point is, he is your father. You are more precious to him than birds. Therefore, you don't need to be afraid. That kind of pervasive providence, combined with that kind of fatherly care means he can and will take care of you. So seek the kingdom first with radical abandon and don't be anxious. So brothers and sisters, these passages and lots more remind us that our circumstances are not outside the view and control of our loving father. He's given us grace upon grace every day And uh, we need to remind ourselves of the many ways that he blesses us through the days. In the coming chapters, we'll see some specifics that will help our fights for faith and the carrying out of our individual and corporate stewardships. But for now, in your suffering, in your weariness, in your confusion, in your fear, do not lose heart. Do not lose heart. Your loving Father is working all things together in your lives wisely and well for glorious ends, even if you can't feel it. And I don't mean to say this glibly. You know, I'm sure there are deep pains and sorrows that I can't imagine. And I can't tell you how things are gonna end. I can't. But what I can say is that Jesus promises to meet us, weary and heavy laden as we are, to give his rest, in his time and in his way. He business to seek him, and not just relief from our circumstances. And we heard from Jonathan last week, we're, we're a family, we're the household of God together. We wanna to walk alongside one another using all the means that God has given. Um, God does not mean for us to walk and struggle alone. And, and you know, I, I, I may not be able to solve the circumstances in which you find yourself, only God can do that, but I can help share the burden, and we together can help share that burden. So Paul spills a lot of ink to remind his readers, hey, including us, that this knowledge of God, believing his knowledge in us of us and his ultimately good plan for each of us, even in our difficulty, is one reason we should not lose heart. We're in his hand. Don't throw in the towel don't give up hope. He's there. And I need a drink of water. It's amazing how dry a mouth gets. Another reason we should not lose heart, Paul helps us zoom out from his and our personal circumstances to a view from the very throne room of God himself. I love love this. So let's, 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 kind of step through verses 7 to 12 and just note a few things. So he talks of this gospel, pointing back to what we saw last week in, in chapter 2, specifically verses 13 and 16, where we see the glories of the things accomplished by the death of Christ. Oh, may God never let our familiarity um, cloud the immensity of what's described there. It's magnificent. It's a gift of grace. We've talked about that already, the working of his power. Um, we saw back in chapter one that God has, re- has wielded his power and he's wielding his power now for us who believe. And, you know, I, I have to remind myself all the time you know, uh, that, you know, that, that God is at work in me. He's at work in my kids. He's at work in you know, people I'm around. Um, even I don't see it. Um, I don't perceive it. It's quietly, maybe, in answers to prayer. My wife is great about reminding me, hey, we prayed about that, remember? Yes. Um, And it often comes when it's not showy. But God is there. Just because I don't see it or perceive it doesn't mean that he's absent. Moving on, Paul's gospel ministry has it consists of two things: mainly preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ, and then bringing light to another mystery previously unknown—the plan of God across the ages. So, quickly looking at these unsearchable riches of Christ—who he is and what he gives—what comes to mind when you think, friends? Think about what about folks in other in other countries? You know, maybe a couple of goats and cows bicycle to ride to work and worship, clean water, regular meals. Uh, My mind usually goes to to Psalm 103 and his benefits. He forgives all my iniquities. He heals all my diseases. He redeems my life from the pit, crowns me with steadfast love and mercy, gives good things to enjoy that renew and reinvigorate. So then I, I add the qualifier, Unsearchable. Unsearchable. My mind, wow! Just think, unsearchable cows and goats. How about that? We've seen amazing amazing truths already in chapters one and two. Um, And I also want to look at at the ultimate reality that uh, that John records for us in in Revelation five verses eleven to fourteen. Let me read that for fun. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worship. This, this is ultimate reality. It's the ultimate reality. You know, step back and think about that. Um, and as a picture of the truth that, that we saw back in a couple of weeks ago in, in Ephesians 2, 7, that in the coming ages, Christ will will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace. Can you, can you imagine C.S. Lewis in his, in concludes his book, The Last Battle, with these words. The things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is end of all the stories. And we can truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Can you imagine, you hear that these unsearchable riches are mind blowing realities that Christ is making known for our everlasting joy. He's revealing them to us now for our joy he talks about the plan of god across the ages and we've always wondered you know why is this happening what in, what in the world is going on um, so paul again is drawing us things uh, to our minds to things of com- cosmic proportions and, and he's talked about god's will and good pleasure and now here of god's eternal purpose and plan and we think what is what is the ultimate purpose of all this Verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The focus is on the church of God and and the wisdom demonstrated there. A.W. Tozer defines God's wisdom in this way. The ability to devise perfect ends and to achieve those ends by the most perfect means It sees the end from the beginning, so there can be no need to guess or conjecture. Wisdom sees everything in focus, each in proper relation to all, and is thus able to work toward predestined goals with flawless manifold wisdom of God, multifaceted. Think of a diamond, all the glittering faces of it. Majestic, immense, inscrutable. Think of it, everything, everything that has happened in history, across the ages, across the planet, and beyond, focused on God's church as the theater and demonstration of God's wisdom. And for whom? It's written for us, to be sure. But Paul reveals the main audience God intends to impress is the heavenly rulers and authorities. We've already seen that Paul has identified Jesus as above him already, and somehow in our present position, we're seated with Christ in the heavenlies. So this gospel and its place in God's eternal plans and purposes does not consist entirely of our circumstances, though it, though it does, our personal relationship with Christ. It involves the church across all time, across all the world for the display of God's immensely multifaceted wisdom to cosmic rulers and authorities. This ultimate reality is meant to, to take our breath away. Think about it. You and I are part of cosmic reality that dwarfs our current circumstances. Oh, God, give us eyes to see We went on vacation a few weeks ago, and I typically like to take a break from my Bible reading, um, and I uh, came upon Second Corinthians chapter four at the beach, and I read this: "So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison." As we look, not are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So God has given us everything we need for life and godliness now in His promises. He means for us to cling to Him. These things are true. God has purposes and plans from all time. That he's executing and unfolding flawlessly. He's not making up history as He goes along. God has foreseen and continues to foresee everything across all time, all circumstances, all enemies, all evil, all sin, all everything else. We are in his plans personally and individually. He's our daddy. But more wondrously, perhaps, we are part of the amazing world my church that is at the absolute center of history. God's wisdom is transcendent. It's monolithic. His church is part of something so big it can't be stopped. It can't be stopped. God, I cry all the time, I'm sorry. Brothers and sisters, God calls us to step back and gaze and wonder at our God and what he's doing. He's revealed it to us. It's not a mystery. Paul says, look at these glories. Don't lose heart. Don't give up hope. Don't throw in the towel. Don't. So I thought, as I was writing that, I said, take a step back. So I did it. And I'm going to share with you, just as I was thinking through this book, um, stepping back through Ephesians 1 and 2, we saw in this chapter that, that, God created everything. Um, and so, I uh, you know, started with the glories of God's creation. You know, spring in Atlanta is glorious. Uh, you know, we live by the East Lake golf course. And so we walk around all the time, the flowers and it's it's amazing. Red bugs, dogwoods, azaleas, resplendent in color. It's amazing. And God is involved in the intricate details of stamen and stem and flower. A couple of weeks ago, we were at the beach and we observed the tides. Do you know what the tide is? It's the gravity of the moon, 240,000 miles away, pushing and pulling the water in the oceans. You know how much water is in the oceans? I mean, it's crazy. The sun... 93,000, sorry, 93 million miles away, 864,000 miles in diameter, with a surface temperature of 5,500 degrees Celsius. Warming my face on a spring day, burning my back at the beach, holds the solar system in orbit, and it's one of the smallest stars in the Milky Way. And I heard a sound back, a couple weeks ago about the discovery of a new galaxy some you know, gazillion light years away. I don't remember how many. And I was reminded that you know, light travels at 186,200 miles per second. That's 6 trillion miles in one calendar year. Now multiply that by thousands of light years. What? Somehow, God, our God is be above all of that. I mean, think about that. It's all oh my gosh. And then recalling, I just read in, in Revelation the ultimate reality of Christ in His throne. These gospel truths that we've seen. Um, and then I think about Ephesians two, and I was, I was dead, and uh, following the ways of the world, and. Um, you know, I shudder. I think how many times a day I'm indifferent to this immense one. Um, thinking acting like he doesn't exist. You're stiff-arming him while I go about and do things my way. Um, how I trifle with thoughts and words and actions that he's told me he doesn't like. oh my gosh, the wrath of God, I, I was a child of wrath. You know, you know, the wrath of God is not a temper tantrum, uh, overreaction of some egomaniac that needs strokes from me for some reason. It's a holy rage at spurned love, at rebellion of cosmic proportions. And, and I was a child, I mean, I was, it was coming on me. Before I came to Christ. And you, it was coming on you. It's coming on you. Please come talk to me. This is not a game. And then the second half of chapter 2 in Ephesians, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Magnificent. Loved and accepted by this glorious one. Where's kids? And look at Verse 12, instead of abject terror, we have boldness. And it's like a kid, your kids, they ask you for anything. And you have access all the time. It's like, what? I can't find time for prayer? It's like, what? We have confidence that these things are true. Not because of anything in me, but entirely because of the person and work of Jesus. We'll celebrate that in the Lord's Supper in a minute. But so brothers and sisters, these realities are glorious. Do not lose heart. Don't throw in the towel. Don't give up hope. We have a heavenly father who knows us and our circumstances. His covenant love is sure even at times we can't see it or feel it, even in our suffering and difficulty. You know what? Maybe especially in our suffering and difficulty. Let's lift our eyes to peer beyond our lives and our world at unseen realities God has revealed for our hope. He's real. His gifts are real. His purposes are real and good. His church is real. It's unstoppable. And we have access to this majestic one. Can you imagine? Let's fight to hear Paul's. Paul tell us, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Amen. All right, let's move into our time with the Lord's Supper.